This is Wessler Media. We sincerely appreciate you taking the time to listen to this episode of Profiles. Episode one was about Cedar Point. Episode two about the terrifying animal escape in Zanesville. Episode three, we'll get to that in a second. But first, would you take the time to share this episode with a friend and also give us a five-star rating here on Profiles? Okay, let's get into episode three of Profiles right now. This is a Wessler Media production. The crew. You know, Columbus doesn't exist without the crew and vice versa. We always talk about the crew as a team of first. You know, they were the first team in Major League Soccer. It was quite a feather in Columbus's cap, you know, at the time. I really am Columbus until I die. You know, that's why I love the crew. Today we are officially announcing that we have sold the team uh, to Anthony Precord. I'm being told by a reliable source that they're going to move. Unless a deal is made here in Columbus for a new downtown stadium, Precourt's going to move the team to Austin, Texas. When I say like it was the worst moment of my life, it was because at that moment, somebody was threatening to take everything from me. I broke down and cried. I'm not going to lie. It's more than just a sports team. It's family. You don't just yank the oldest tree out of the ground like that. I knew from that moment that I was going to do something about it and that it was going to work. To keep a team to stay. Never before has a fan base ever been able to influence that. This is the only time. The difference here was that crew fans said, we're not going to let it happen. People in other states sometimes view Ohio as flyover territory. It was just Ohio against the world. Save the crew, save the crew, save the crew. That was it, save the crew. Hello and welcome to Profiles. This is the series that discovers the people, places, ideas, and events that make Ohio. I'm your host, Vince Tornero. Within the world of sports, Columbus, Ohio has forever been known as the city of scarlet and gray. But when Major League Soccer formed and anointed Columbus with the first soccer franchise in America, our city adopted two new colors, black and gold. Since their first game on April 13th of 1996, the Columbus crew have been a pillar of our state capitals community. On December 12th of 2020, the Columbus crew hosted the Seattle Sounders in a bid for the MLS Cup. Mafray Stadium, now known as Historic Crew Stadium, was largely empty. Had this game occurred in any other year besides 2020, it would have been packed with fans standing shoulder to shoulder in the cold, bundled in black and gold scarves, hats, and jerseys. But just 1,500 fans were admitted, hardly reaching the stadium's 20,000 seat capacity. But even before the starting whistle, crew fans had something to celebrate. In all likelihood, the crew should not have been playing in that game. In fact, the crew shouldn't have existed at all at the time. That's because in October of 2017, Anthony Precourt, the crew's owner, announced that he was relocating the team to Austin, Texas. This shocked fans at the time of the announcement, and it didn't seem like there was much that could be done to save the team. I mean, like, what could be done? After all, franchises pick up and move from city to city all the time. Just ask any Browns fan. Under normal circumstances, the story of the Columbus crew would be over. Yet this is where our story begins. For fans, the crew were not going to go down without a fight. This is the story of how the city of Columbus came together and saved their team. But before we learn about that, let's go back a little further into the beginning of the MLS and discover why this team matters so much to Columbus in the first place. When MLS was starting, you know, they had probably 30-something candidate cities. That is crew historian Steve Sirk. One of the prerequisites for, for getting a team was you had to have 10,000 season ticket deposits to be considered for a team. And in the end, only one city met that goal, and that was Columbus. 
And that's why Columbus is considered the, the charter member of Major League Soccer, you know, club number one. Columbus, right from the get-go, you know, was kind of the city that took the most interest in Major League Soccer, which in turn drew the interest of Lamar Hunt. So now you have most notable sports owners in the, in the country now backing that team. It was quite a feather in Columbus's cap, you know, at the time. It just gave people who moved to Columbus and, and cared about Columbus, you know, kind of something of their own. It wasn't Ohio State. So that's how Columbus got a soccer team. But where did the name Crew come from? Yeah, it's like a name the team contest, or, you know, where people could submit names. Uh, the one I know for sure that was being considered was the Columbus Eclipse, because on the day that Columbus became the first city to hit the 10,000 uh, season ticket deposits, there was an eclipse in Columbus. But thankfully it didn't happen. I don't think that was a very good name. But uh, Crew was one of the names submitted, and, and that was the one that was selected. When the crew first started, they you know, played at the Horseshoe, and they did great that first year. I mean, I think they averaged, what, 17,000, almost 18,000 fans a game and really got off on the right foot. Name's Josh Poland, PA announcer for the crew. First game, uh, my dad says to me and my brothers, hey, we had to go check out this crew game at, at the Shoe. I think it might be pretty cool. So we're driving to the game, and I'm thinking there might be maybe 3,000, 4,000 people there. We walk into the stadium, and I was blown away because there were 25,000 people. So I think it was only the third home game. There was only three minutes left. They're losing two to one. Pete Marino scores to tie it up in the 87th minute. And then Brian McBride scores two minutes later. And all of a sudden, they win three to two. And after the game, the fans just storm the field. It's only the third game in team history. And people are just going crazy and they're just running on the field. And the, and the players you know, kind of felt like, wow, like we've kind of arrived. Like these, these people care this much that we won. That's right. Crew fans were that passionate right out of the gate. It's just something about soccer fans, but also something about Ohio sports fans in general. In Ohio and in Columbus in particular, we tend to, to feel like maybe we're looked down upon by the bigger cities. We're looked down upon by the New Yorks and the L.A.s and the Chicago's. And so we we tend to fight harder. And I think maybe that that passion bleeds into the way that we show ourselves as fans of the crew. We always talk about the crew as a team of firsts. You know, they were the first team in Major League Soccer, first draft pick in Brian McBride, first training facility, first soccer-specific stadium. The horseshoe was going to be going undergoing renovations. And so right away, you kind of run into the problem like, well, is this team even going to stay here? They were going to build the arena in the soccer stadium, you know, right downtown in the, in the arena district. That, that whole thing got voted down. Then there was the plan to build the stadium in Dublin. And then that also falls through. Obviously, it's a bummer. doesn't pass. And Jamie Roots, who was the president and GM at the, at the start of the, the crew in those early years, was taking Lamar back to the airport. And then Lamar's like, oh, you know, I'm hungry. So they went to the McDonald's, you know, the one you drive past coming to and from you know, the airport, that McDonald's right there. And Jamie goes, you know, he goes up to the counter to order and he turns around and he's like, where's Lamar? He looks over. You know, because it's the airport McDonald's, they have a big map of Columbus on the wall. And Lamar is just like, you know, it's kind of like running his finger over the map and just like intently looking at the map. So he, he walks up to Lamar and he sees Lamar with this map and he's, he's like, well, like, what are you doing? And Lamar's like, well, I'm trying to find the next place that we're going to build our stadium. And Jamie's like, well, you mean 
we're not leaving. We're like, we're, we're not moving. Lamar, he said, Lamar just like looked at him with like this really funny look on his face. And Lamar goes, why in the world would we do that? But he said, it wasn't just like, oh no, we're going to keep trying. It was more like, you're crazy. Like, well, why are you even saying that? You know, within a couple of weeks, they heard from the Ohio Expo Center, like, hey, come meet us. We, we have a piece of land you might you might be interested in. Sure enough, one thing leads to another, and that's where, you know, Columbus Crew Stadium was built. Lamar Hunt believed in Columbus, and he believed in Major League Soccer that much that, you know, once he found a piece of land, I mean, he plunked down, you know, $30 million of his own money to build that stadium. He thought that highly of Columbus and of, of the potential of Major League Soccer that he was going to do this with his own money to prove to everybody that this could work. He um, built, builds the stadium, the first soccer-specific stadium in, in MLS, and it really just it changed the league. First franchise named, and we're first soccer-specific stadium in North America. So I think they're attached to the community more so than other teams. Pete McGinty, he's the author of Accidental Heroes, a great book that chronicles the actions and events of the Save the Crew movement. You know, Mayor Coleman actually said at first, he goes, you know, Columbus is the, the crew. You know, Columbus doesn't exist without the crew and vice versa. It's just, a, it's just a relationship that's very symbiotic. And crew fans, again, they rally around this team and they rally around the city and they believe in the city and they believe in the crew. And there are a lot of crew fans that became crew fans just because they love Columbus. I'm not really a soccer person. It really does come down for me personally that that this is our city and that this is this is my community. My name is Morgan Hughes, and I was the uh, spokesperson uh, for Save the Crew. I really am Columbus until I die, and that's you know that's why I love the crew. And, you know, I think it might go back a little bit to um, MLS is a newer league. You know, it, the first season was 1996. I was 15. When you are with something from the beginning, you feel like not only is it a part of you, but you are a part of it. When I see the Columbus Crew logo, I almost see my name. I, it, it, is so, it is so personal to me. Having been involved with the team in so many different roles, it's just been like family to me. You know, it's 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 something that's a part of me. It's a part of who I am, and it's just been an incredible run. It's it's hard to say exactly what it is. I think the level of let's say the level of fanaticism is different than it is in other sports. The way a community rallies around soccer is um, different than football, baseball, hockey, you name it. You have people that are chanting the entire game, which you don't see in other sports. You have people that are just wearing their emotions on their sleeves. It's 90 minutes of standing up, yelling and chanting and, and cheering on your favorite team. We believe that if we scream a little bit harder, a little bit louder, they push a little bit harder and they try a little bit harder. and. You just feel like you're a part of the team. There isn't a sport that eclipses soccer fandom. The crew were a Columbus staple in the 90s and early 2000s, but things began to shake up when their owner and founder, Lamar Hunt, passed away in 2006. Lamar Hunt, you know, the, the founder of the crew, who had passed on by then, would have never seen Columbus lose the team. There, there was no way he would have ever let that happen. 
The Suns, though, they had uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. They had the Kansas City Soccer Club. You know, they weren't really involved in Columbus. And so we needed a local owner. We needed somebody who was going to be here on the ground. And so when they sold the team to Precord coming from, you know, the West Coast, that was a little bit of a concern. Today, we are officially announcing that we have sold the team uh, to Anthony Precord, who is now my pleasure to introduce. This is a, a, a really special moment for, for me and my family. Um, we're greatly honored to be here. Um, I've long admired the contributions that the Hunt family has made to both business and sports. It was important to the Hunt family and to Major League Soccer that the crew remain in Columbus. Um, so we're very committed to that. We're excited to be here. I'm excited to get to know Columbus better. I'll be honest, I haven't spent a lot of time here, but I intend to start spending a lot of time here. You know, they did their homework. Uh, they really wanted to make sure they were selling the team to somebody who was going to keep the team here. And, um, and they had a 10-year clause with Precourt to keep the team in Columbus in their contract. I was initially concerned, but I spoke to him personally at Hendock's Pub on High Street, and I, I asked him this very specific question, like, are you an out-of-town trust fund guy who's just making an investment here to turn it around and move it somewhere else? You know, he told me to my face, no. And I believe people when, they're, when they say something, when they do something, I, I believe them. It was a time of just wondering what would come next. You know, you, you have an owner who's taking over, but he's not based in Columbus. He's based elsewhere. So what exactly is that going to look like? Is it going to mean another uh, absentee owner potentially? But um, I think we were all hopeful. At the time he bought the team, he said all the right things, did all the right things. He invested in players. He rebranded the team uh, a couple of years in. Um, which was seen as a real positive thing. And he talked a, a great game about how, you know, the crew is Columbus and Columbus is the crew. And so I think, you know, those things gave the fans a sense of security with him. People were rooting for Precourt to make it. I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> I mean, he owned the team, right? We got we, we to gotta help this guy succeed. The honeymoon period was, okay, we've got, we've got a dedicated owner now. Uh, he's making investments. Uh, it's good that it's not with the Hunt family anymore because they're not here. You know, again, this guy's saying all the right things. He's doing the right things. Despite the fans' cautious optimism and some positive decisions Precourt made, it became clear to some that Precourt was not as dedicated to Columbus as he seemed at first. I think he looked at it as an investment, and I don't think he was getting the kind of return he was hoping for. He, I don't think, really understood that, you know, he owned the team financially, but it was the city's team. Precourt said he would move to Columbus. He never did, of course. He was a member of the Columbus Partnership, which is the, the top CEOs of organizations here in the city. Wasn't an active member, didn't ingratiate himself with other members. He found that it was harder to work with the Columbus community than he thought it would be, and which is not, it's not hard to work with this community, but he just didn't invest in it. He never uh, created that sense of intimacy with the city and with the fan base. I think he's very thin-skinned, so when he uh, started to become a target. People started to criticize him more and more. I think he withdrew even more. It was obvious that he was not as committed to the city. Obviously, he never did move here. He came to a few games here and there. He wasn't, you know, I mean, it was, it became more and more obvious over time. Going into the 2016 season, I want to say I was, it was before the first game. It was a Friday afternoon. And uh, Andy Lochnane, who was the president of the crew at the time, he came around and asked me how I was doing. And I said, good. And I told him that I was worried about Anthony Precourt because he hadn't been to a crew game in like two years. I was like, I worry that 
maybe the people on Twitter are giving him too much crap. And I, I worry that, uh, you know, he's not having a good time in MLS like he thought he might. Because he was communicating less. You know, when he bought the crew, he was, he was in town a couple times and, you know, he was active on Twitter and he would engage with us and, you know, he'd post pictures of here's next year's jersey and he'd do, you know, like that. as the years went on, he, he did that less and less. And, and I was worried about what I called at the time a spiral of silence. And that was him thinking he made a mistake in, in getting involved in professional sports. And, you know, I worried about him because I considered him a part of our community and I didn't want him, to, I didn't want to see him regret his choices to, to be a part of our family. So if anything, I was worried about him selling the crew to somebody else and saying, I'm going to retire to a ski town or whatever. I had no inkling that uh, he was uh, plotting to destroy my community. It was towards the end of the season. Columbus was certainly going to make the playoffs. Uh, we were a good team. And no one saw this coming. I was sitting on my back porch, and uh, my friend John Zadar texted me, and he, he said, I'm hearing something bad's going to happen. And I said, what? He said, I, I heard that I'm being told by a reliable source that they're going to move. Everything kind of came to a halt. And I just kind of looked at the message for a minute and, and I started trying to convince him that that couldn't happen. We're the first team. This is the first soccer specific stadium. We're the, we're the home of the national team. This is Columbus, baby. Why would, why, would, why would they do this? They can't do this. They wouldn't do this. The people who would know stuff were telling me that they couldn't say, which I believed to mean they were either under an NDA or or they had um, they had some sort of understanding that they would release this at a certain time and whatever so I knew it was something I hoped it wasn't us moving and then the Grant Wall tweet happened and um, there are no words the tweet came out from Grant Wall who is the soccer writer for Sports Illustrated it says that uh, you know, unless a deal is made here in Columbus for a new downtown stadium, Precourt's going to move the team to Austin, Texas. When he bought the team, the deal with the uh, with Don Garber, the commissioner of the MLS, was that there was what was called an Austin clause. If he deemed he could not be successful in Columbus, he could just pick up and leave and move to Austin. Austin and Columbus resemble themselves pretty favorable, right? Both state capitals, both major universities, both up and coming, growing young professional population, but they weren't clamoring for a franchise. You know, even city council was reluctant to bring Precourt in and give him any deals with regard to property and so forth. And there were a lot of skeptics. And, um, and they were also, there were a lot of people in Austin that weren't too keen on the fact that they were taking a team from Columbus. It was a, t it was a moment where you freeze. You don't exhale for a minute. When I say like it was the worst moment of my life, it was because at that moment, somebody was threatening to take everything from me. I broke down and cried, I'm not gonna lie. And I know that might sound silly to some people because it's just a sports team, but for me, it's more than just a sports team, it's family. When you say, well, it's, you know, your sports team is leaving, that, that's not what it is to us. And that wasn't what it was to me. I thought of, my family being ripped apart. It was just kind of having like your, your past, present, and future ripped out of you. They didn't see it coming. 
they were just devastated. People didn't sleep, people cried. I mean, every, all of a sudden, Twitter blew up and, and people started, you know, what the hell does this mean? And who knows what about this? And, you know, what's going on? And it was just this this noise out there. And then the next day, Precourt ran a full-page ad in the dispatch, thanking the fans, saying, yes, uh, it's a consideration, but I want to stay here if I can, so forth and so on. I floated through life for the next 18 hours. And um, I was looking at my phone and... Um, Chris Doran, who's a, a good friend of mine, and he's the you know radio play-by-play for the crew, he sent me a DM on Twitter, and he and he just said, "I'm I'm so mad for you." And when when Chris sent me that message, it was like my feet hit the ground for the first time in 18 hours, and I was I was there, I was pissed, and I knew from that from that I knew from that moment that I was going to do something about it, and that it was going to work and that we were going to save the crew. And that was it. The war was on. The next evening, there was a, what really was more of a wake or morning, if you will, at Hendock's Pub. You know, let's go to Hendock's, let's drink, let's, let's cry together, let's mourn together. And there were many people that thought, well, you know, what can we do about this? We can't do anything. There were others that were immediately um, on the offense. I grabbed my computer bag, I threw it in the back of my car, I rolled all of my windows down, I drove to Hendocks and I cranked Won't Back Down by Tom Petty. I know that that sounds dumb, but in the moment, I needed to scream it. I got to Hendocks and I sat down at the bar, took my computer out and I started emailing people. I was trying to find power players, like who in the city would have the capacity to change this and, and, and who in the league would be able to do this. And I, I started putting together an Excel spreadsheet of like the top league sponsors and who the presidents of those organizations were and who the marketing managers were. And, and, and uh, I didn't know what I didn't know. People started coming into the bar and uh, once enough people got there where it was kind of full and... Uh, kind of sensed my moment and I just started walking around to people and I told him that that we have a say in this. He walked around to everybody and said, this is not over. Don't hang your head. Stand up straight. Quit crying. <laughs> We're going to fight this thing. That was the message at first night. This is not over. Tell everyone you know. Earlier that day, you know, they were sticking microphones in people's faces at practice and uh, they, they got to Greg Berhalter and he said, he said something about saluting or respecting the ambition of pre-court. I, I didn't blame Greg, but I tweeted like, really, Greg, you're going to do us like this, something like that. So I'm, I'm at Hendocks and I'm talking to a couple of my friends, Dave Faust, who was eventually ended up on the Save the Crew leadership team and Ethan McKinley. Um, and my phone rang for like the fifth time in like the last 60 seconds. And it was like an unknown caller or blocked number. Or, so I was like, you know, I'm not answering this, I'm not answering this. And I showed it to Ethan like the fifth time it rang. And he's like, hey, you're just, you just started telling people that we were going to save the crew. Maybe you should start answering your phone. <laughs> I picked it up and I said, hello. And the voice on the other end said, hey, is this Morgan? And I said, yeah. And he said, hey, Morgan, it's, it's Greg. Burhalter. And I was like, hey, Greg, can you hold on a minute? <laughs> so I went, I busted out the fire exit in the back of the bar, which I knew didn't have a fire alarm attached to it. We went out back and uh, talked to Greg for 90 seconds, two minutes, three minutes. He apologized for what he had said. He said, um, 
you know, I wasn't thinking and I, uh, it is certainly not what I meant. I felt like he was regurgitating talking points to me after, after a minute. And so I said, I interrupted him. I said, Greg, let me stop you and ask you something. Am I on a call list? Like, do, are you trying to, are you trying to silence me? Like, do, do, because I'm a rabble rouser, are there people in the front office? Am I on your list to call and say like, oh, you know, we're going to fight for Columbus. And are you trying to, are you trying to silence me, man? Cause that's kind of what I'm getting here. And he's, and he just kind of like exhaled and he took a breath and didn't say anything for a second. He's like, no, you're not. I called, you know, somebody in the front office and got your cell phone number. And I just, I just wanted to say, I'm sorry. And, and this sucks. And I hate this. And I hate that this is happening. And I was like, Greg, that's good enough for me. I accept your pseudo apology. You didn't need to apologize to me, but um, we're square. And we kind of hung up and I was like, all right, well, I'm not sure what that meant, but <laughs> off we go. It was that evening that he registered hashtag save the crew. So think how quickly that happened within just 24 hours. Now we have hashtag save the crew, which became the whole movement. And because I had decided that night to answer every single phone call, whether it was a block number, restricted number, an 888 number, I didn't care. I was answering it just in case. And the next day I got this call. He did get a call at work and it was somebody looking for a funeral home. Somebody said, oh, is this the blah, blah, blah funeral home or something? And I was like, no, it's not. And they're like, oh, sorry, must be a wrong number. I had to tweet like, just got the, somebody called me thinking there was a funeral home. This is not a funeral home. No funeral here. And it was insane. Just like that, Morgan began leading the charge to save the crew. But in order to do so, he needed a team. Now, the Save the Crew movement, I mean, they, they are all professionals in their field. It wasn't as though anybody who wanted to be part of Save the Crew leadership team could be a part, just come to meetings. It wasn't, it didn't work that way. It was very purposeful. Morgan is a natural spokesperson. David Miller is a PR and media relations expert. John Zadar is a tremendous graphic designer. And I could go on and on. And, and they all brought those skills to the table. So they developed an organization with individuals in all of these skill sets. Tom Davis uh, is, was the web developer. And he immediately, by the way, registered SaveTheCrew.com. He wasn't part of Save the Crew. I think it was that evening or the next day, and he wrote Morgan. He didn't know Morgan, said, hey, by the way, I registered the URL, and uh, by the way, I know how to build websites, and, you know, boom, you're in, right? One of the best things that Save the Crew had going for it was that we were sized well, that we were small enough to be nimble. We could grab a hold of any, of any uh, opportunity. By Wednesday or Thursday, they're starting to talk about, hey, let's have a rally. First Save the Crew meeting was literally us planning this rally. Keep in mind, this is just days after this tweet. Now, no one had put a rally on before. How do you just put a rally on unless you know how to put a rally on, right? First, they chose the Columbus Commons as the point of rally, and, and they tweeted out, hey, we're going to have rally Sunday afternoon at the Columbus Commons. People at Columbus Commons said, you can't just come rally here. Nobody thought, hey, we need a permit. We didn't ask permission. Just through some uh, lucky connections, they were able to uh, pull some strings and get a permit for uh, City Hall. So now they go back and they're planning this whole rally for Sunday and they look at the permit and it says Saturday. <laughs> so these series of like goofs, if you will. All goofs aside, the rally was on for Sunday. 
Although they mistakenly got their permit for Saturday, the team felt it was best to ask for forgiveness later than lose the momentum they already had with their original date. So when it t- comes time for the for the rally, now they've got to get speakers. We were getting confirmations from people who were going to speak like the morning of, you know, we were trying to be representative of the swath of Columbus. You know, we wanted business owners. We wanted crew fans. We wanted former crew players. We wanted media personalities. We wanted everyone who listened to know that this affects more than just crew fans. This affects the city of Columbus. There were moments in Save the Crew where it was do or die. If 20 people showed up to that thing, you know, forget it, it's over. That, you know, the dispatch publishes a picture of 20 people in it. Oh, no one in Columbus cares. Everything had to go so correctly, so right, so perfectly in order to launch us to where we needed to go. Coming down to the rally, they're on their way to the rally. They don't know if 100 people are going to be here, 10 people, 1,000 people. And it turned out to have 2,000 people, right? And there were another 2,000 that watched on Periscope Live. I got there two hours early. And when I turned the corner to walk up to City Hall on the steps, there were already like 300 people there. It was crazy. And like, we hadn't even plugged in a mic yet. There were people with signs, there were people putting up banners. I mean, it was, it was nuts. It just felt like a crew game. You know, the chants and the songs and, and, um, and I think people walked away from that rally saying, we are not losing this team. That was when I think a lot of people realized that this could be big. The one thing, the one sentence I said during Save the Crew that will probably outlive me was me screaming into that microphone. We are not done yet. We are going to save the crew. This is not over. If you came here for a funeral, if you thought this was a wake, you're in the wrong place, but I know you're not. This is not over. Tell everyone you know. Save the crew. Thank you. This Save the Crew rally attracted the attention of local VIPs. One of them was a member of the original 96 team, defender Mike Clark. The crew is personal because I played for the crew. Um, best years of my life, some of the best years of my life, but it's also personal because now I'm in your guys' shoes. And it pissed me off when I heard this news. Because with the crew, as you can see today, you know, we planted roots here, and it was a it was a small little sapling when we first came here in '96. It is now a massive oak with root system that spreads out all over the world. They might make they might think it's a good business decision to move to another city, but it would be the worst move that they could make to take the Columbus crew from Columbus, Ohio. The crew belongs here in Columbus. It breaks my heart to think that we are taking this team away from this city that bleeds black and gold. The people here, we want to keep our team. We've supported it. Uh, We will continue to support it. I'm Elizabeth. This is Duncan. Duncan was born in 2008, the championship year. We promised Duncan out and that if they won, we'd name our kid after him. And here he is. (laughs) So he's been going to games since he was two months old. His little sister's been going since she was two weeks old. This is our family tradition. We can't picture our city without it. July of 2015, my father died from cancer. The crew has been that thing that's always been there for me. When our oldest son, Kerry, was at Otterbein College, he started going to the games in the Nordeca, and he invited mom and dad to come along. And so we did, and we were immediately hooked. Um, In 2012, our Kerry was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And um, on May 24th, 2014, we had tickets for the... um, Crew versus Chicago Fire. 
none of us went up to it because he was at home and we were with him. The game was on the TV. We were singing, I can't help falling in love with crew. I was holding his hand and he crossed over. The Columbus crew will always, always mean that connection. And it's breaking my heart to think that they're gonna leave us. The Save the Crew movement had support not just from your everyday fan, but from the Columbus business community as well, including the founder of Jenny's Ice Cream. She heard about the rally. She inquired and said, hey, I'd like to speak. And so that developed a relationship between her and Morgan and Jenny and, and her husband, Charlie. I mean, they're crew fans, but they are Columbus fans. You know, I mean, think of her business and being here in Columbus and she's a cheerleader for Columbus. And so that's one of these cases where, you know, we as a community, we're not going to let this happen. Columbus doesn't let this happen. And, and that was something really special. Hi guys, I'm Jenny Britton Bauer, and I cannot imagine this city without the crew. The crew belongs to Columbus. Um, my husband was a season ticket holder back in the Ohio Stadium days, and we went on our first dates for many years uh, to the crew games. And now we have two great children who are the next generation of crew fans. We can't imagine the city without the crew. We love the crew, and uh, we'll be here. Uh, support the crew forever, save the crew. We leave the rally. We go to Endeavor on, uh, on, on Fifth Avenue in Grandview. Jenny Britton Bauer had spoken at the rally and I got to Endeavor and she called me and she said, I'm giving your number to Doug Kreidler. And I was like, who is Doug Kreidler? And she's like, well, he's the president of the Columbus Foundation. And I said, what is the Columbus Foundation? <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't know. So hung up with Jenny and Doug Kreidler calls me within like 20 seconds. And Doug said to me in that phone call that Save the Crew is the strongest grassroots movement in the last 50 years in Columbus or something like that. And that was like, wow, I mean, we're a week old, so thank you. And he said, I, I say that not to, you know, pump you up. I say that because people are going to want to use that for their own benefit and be wary of your movement being hijacked by those who don't have the same um, end goal in mind. Doug knows everyone, knows everything. And you need those people, you know, without his guidance, without his crafting of messaging, I don't know what would have become of Save the Crew. He really, really, in those early days, helped me personally care about the way that I said something instead of just the message behind it. When he became the spokesperson for the Save the Crew movement, he had to play this role. He felt as though he couldn't be himself. You know, I, I knew that my attitude and the things that I said and the way that I said them had to not necessarily change, but my walk and my talk had to line up. He's very emotive in social media, through Twitter specifically. And he's not afraid to share his political beliefs, his social beliefs. He's very opinionated. There were people that would respond back to him saying, you know, keep your politics out of my sports, right? Uh, keep your politics out of my crew. And he really had to shut down that part of his, his communication, if you will. And it took a huge toll on him personally. I took that role very seriously because at the end of the day, what Save the Crew was, was a platform of advocacy that was built upon the trust of our community. So um, I tried very hard to live my life accordingly. The rally was only the beginning for the Save the Crew movement. Over the next several weeks, the leadership team organized several initiatives with one goal, to keep saving the crew in minds across Columbus. I think the next evening they had uh, Morgan and uh, Donnie Murray spoke at City Hall and asked for a resolution, which they received. Ask for your help and for your support to save the crew. They went back two weeks later and spoke again. They did the same thing with the county. 
Uh, they and other volunteers did the same thing with other local municipalities. And it was just all to just keep this in the news, keep the current in the news, uh, make sure the movement continued to grow. People feeling lethargic about our movement was the greatest threat to our movement. I mean, I thought about it on the, the day of the rally. I thought about it every day in between October 2017 and October 2018. We had to come up, we had to constantly come up with ways to stay fresh. They knew they needed fan support, they needed political support, they needed business support. And so they were very strategic about how they went about all of that. The Business Ally project was a way to shine a light on what the reality was behind their argument that the businesses in Columbus don't support the crew and that they don't care. On the contrary, here are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of local businesses and national businesses that were willing to put their image and likeness behind the Save the Crew movement. They just spread out and used contacts, but also spread out throughout the city and knocked on doors and made phone calls and got, you know, from Columbus's top corporations to the mom and pop grocery store down, down on 4th Street to support this movement, lend their name, um, in, in some cases lend, lend dollars to certain efforts and so forth. We would all meet at Endeavor at like 10 a.m. on a Saturday. There were hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. We'd all pile into the bar. People would get their marching orders. Here's where you're going in the town. Here's where you're going in the city. Here's your street. Here's, you know, the businesses. We literally walked around town from door to door with window clings and stickers and talked to business owners one by one. You know, we kept sheets that we would turn in after the end of every uh, outing and say, like, we talked to this person. They agreed to put it up. They agreed to have their blah, blah, blah. I, no one was there. Here's my follow-up plan. It was a, we were, you know, kind of like an outside sales organization. They wrote a letter to the commissioner of MLS, and their goal was to get 10,000 fans to sign the letter. Now, these weren't just crew fans. These were fans from across the country. You know, it's, it's one thing to say the country is behind us or the league is behind us. It's another thing to actually have information that proves that. It's, it's another thing to have... Uh, empirical evidence. So the, the, the signature initiative was basically our way to, you know, it was going to be a, it was going to be a media moment. MLS fans, you know, from Seattle, you name it, Seattle, Atlanta, New York, LA, signed this letter. And when they did, they put the little badge of the uh, team they represented on the website. It's one thing if Columbus Crew fans say that, right? Ultimately, what would they care? They were trying to kill our our thing. But if you have thousands and thousands and thousands of, of soccer fans across the country, well, then you can't ignore us anymore. You know, there were people outraged in, in cities across America. It was just a way of, of telling the, the league, hey, this matters not only to Columbus, but it matters to the entire league. Nobody wants you to do this. Everybody respects Columbus's role in MLS. And uh, when something significant like uh, 10,000 pledges would happen, that was, a, that was a bit that was newsworthy and it got exposure. They got media, media coverage all over the world. I mean, Morgan was interviewed on BBC. It's from the BBC World Service. Uh, I want to turn to the U.S. soccer team, the Columbus Group from Ohio. Uh, but their new owner, this is Anthony Precourt, announced his decision to move the team to Austin, Texas, 2,000 kilometers away. But the fans, they want to fight, and they're using this hashtag called Save... The crew, let's bring in Morgan Hughes, a passionate member I hear of Save the Crew. Is that fair? Yeah, you could say that for sure. They were in the LA Times, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, they were in Sports Illustrated, ESPN, Yahoo Sports, all, all across the country. 
there was news about the crew, the Save the Crew movement. Save the Crew was a worldwide phenomenon. You know, people wanted to get involved with that. They had an idea, let's, let's make Save the Crew banners and send them to whoever wants one. I think that first week on the website, they, they put something up that anybody who wants to Save the Crew banner, just register and we'll send you one. <laughs> well, they had thousands of requests from all over the world. And, and it's like, they had to shut it down. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As Morgan said, Save the Crew became a worldwide phenomenon. But at this point in our story, relocating to Austin was still set to happen. But had the crew received this much support to begin with, attendance wouldn't have dropped, right? And Precourt would have never wanted to move the team in the first place. At least that's what he would like you to believe. And this was all about to change. There were so many times in Save the Crew where the whole dynamic shifted. There were two guys who did the research on the Save the Crew team, Keith Noss and Tim Myers. Tim Myers and Keith Noss were our, uh, our resident numbers guys, and they would do the research, and they would pour through just years of documents, and they would uncover stuff. So I'm Tim Myers, and I was a volunteer researcher on behalf of the Save the Crew movement. Initially, my interest just started from the fact that the narrative was one-sided in those first couple of weeks. It was like the narrative of any other team in any other sport in any other era that's decided they wanted to move. It's automatically, well, the community didn't support the team. It was Precourt and PSV and Garber and MLS basically shaming the city of Columbus. I mean, it was a smear campaign. No one ever asked that rhetorical question of, well, did the owners do a good job? Even worse, do owners ever try to tank their own performance to try to justify that narrative of the community isn't supportive? They both started digging into this and, and their attitude was, what have we missed? You know, what did we miss? What were the warning signs? Right. So when they start digging this stuff up, it's like, oh, yeah, that. And then there was that. And then there was that. There were some things about their narrative that just didn't add up. When you look back after finding out who Precourt really was, you could say, okay, well, they cut promotions. In certain match days, they would have craft brew nights and they would have dollar nights and they would have, they would do other types of promotional events. And it seemed like that last season, there weren't as many. They uh, scheduled the top teams on weeknights. I kind of reflected back on a particular Wednesday night game. We were playing the LA Galaxy. I remember having a thought saying, gee, it's too bad that we're playing them on a Wednesday night because if this was on the weekend, this would be a huge crowd and it would be a big deal. And I started thinking, well, maybe there's something to this. Like, you know, they keep saying we're not supportive and the narrative is one-sided. So let's go see what I can get from public data that, to actually test what it was that the league and pre-court were claiming about Columbus and its lack of support. One of the times where everything changed is when Tim Myers released his report called What's the Truth? It just annihilated, it eviscerated all of pre-court sports ventures and Major League Soccer's arguments. They very clearly were trying to excuse the fact that they were destroying our community because basically we were asking for it. That was their argument. And Tim Myers just outflanked him. 
The first thing I wanted to do is look at attendance data, who the opponent was, what month of the year it was, what day of week was the game, how many designated players or big name star players did the opponent have. So I started there and, and realized pretty quickly after doing some really basic modeling on it that a professional schedule maker should have expected about half of the drop in attendance that the crew realized that 2017 season, just based on the way the schedule stacked up. A lot of the schedule had us playing what should have been the more attractive opponents that would have drawn larger crowds, all us equal. You know, suddenly we're playing them more frequently earlier in the year when, you know, when the weather's not as good and also on weeknights. Then you start looking at things like Precourt's claims. You know, he was really trying to put forth this, oh, I've, I've signed all these designated players. I've taken us up to three designated players for the first time in club history. So for those who aren't familiar with the term, MLS teams are allowed to have up to three players on their team whose salary is not a part of their overall salary cap. These are called designated players. This gives teams a chance of signing an international superstar like David Beckham without spending a huge chunk of their salary cap on one person. The reality was he had us up to three designated players, I think, for, for a matter of weeks. The crew, during his ownership tenure, they, we were the only team that I think they had like three straight years where we only used one of those designated player slots. He really wasn't interested in improving the product on the field. Our important games were suddenly being played on Wednesday nights instead of Saturday nights, and the marketing budget was absolutely destroyed. They disinvested, you know, in Hispanic outreach and... Uh, youth outreach. Another great piece of information out there was the number of corporate sponsors. A common theme from, from Garber and Precourt at the time was, you know, corporate community of Columbus doesn't support the team. So all you had to do is go through the webpage and just start counting. And it found out that the crew had, compared to most MLS teams, they had quite a few more. So then you take that and then you also pair it with the, you know, with the, re, the reports that the Columbus partnership basically stepped up and offered to go halvesies on the team with Precourt and he turned them down. So he's trying to make these claims, and yet the facts that are publicly available, you know, they don't align with, with the picture he was painting of the Columbus corporate community. Right after I released the first report, Brian Strauss, who is a, you know, a soccer journalist for Sports Illustrated, he sent out a tweet that he quickly deleted which shared some information that MLS had shared with certain members of the media on the sly. It was never meant for public consumption. They were trying to share some, some business metrics that um, Columbus was dead last in. We're, we're, we're terrible. We're, look at all these business metrics, national media. Columbus is terrible. This is why we're getting ready to move the team. They reported an average ticket price of like about 20 bucks, which is supposed to be last in the league. And I wanted to see, could I verify that number? Ultimately, after quite a bit of manipulations, that even if I was trying to take a really conservative mathematical approach, the average ticket price they were putting out there, it was mathematically impossible. If they're misleading the media on this point, how can they be trusted on any of the other things they're saying telling the media? They would say this, and he would find proof that that. that. They would say A, he would say actually it's B. And here's the reasons why, and here's the evidence. The game was up, you know, that they could they could keep fighting this fight, but, you know, everyone knew at that point it was a destructive campaign to give them excuses to do worse. Right around that same time, that was also the time of the first playoff game that year against NYC. There was a concerted effort by the crew in the league to make sure that they slowed people getting into the stadium. The playoff game, Halloween night uh, against New York, they 
limited the amount of entries, portals into the stadium. So when the game started, the stadium wasn't full. You know, the idea would be ESPN would, you know, pan the stadium and it wouldn't be full. The reality is we had thousands of fans standing outside the gate waiting to get in, and they couldn't because they were slowing entrance into the stadium. In retrospect, you're like, okay, now it's making sense. So they were, here's this manipulation. Were they, you know, were they trying to drive attendance down? Were they trying to show that the metrics were not good in terms of support? Because that's what they pointed to. When I say they, I'm talking about Precourt and Don Garber, the commissioner. He was planning to move to Austin the entire time. When he bought the team, obviously we all know now, he had the rights to the Austin market as part of the deal. Around that time, when you look at the cities who are the most likely to get an MLS franchise in the next round of expansion, San Antonio is one of the leading cities. Anthony Precourt, he buys the crew, he finds himself on the expansion committee, being one of the owners that evaluates expansion candidates. Not surprisingly, as the years went on in his ownership tenure, more cities start to emerge, more potential ownership groups in other cities start to emerge, willing to kick in and pay the heftier and larger expansion fees. And suddenly San Antonio starts to slide down the list of potential targeted cities for MLS expansion. I think the reality probably was that Precourt was allowed access to the Austin market so long as San Antonio wasn't going to be an expansion city. And if you look around the timing of how the, the list of potential expansion cities were changing relative to what we know now after the fact through public records request, when the conversations with Austin really started in earnest with Austin city officials, um, yeah, I think it was pretty much to the point where once they knew for sure San Antonio wasn't going to make the short list in the, the years of expansion to come, then Precourt was free and clear to move to Austin, which he had the territorial rights for. They were going to say anything and do anything to make Columbus look unsupportive, so that way they would feel and appear, more importantly, more justified in moving the league's charter franchise. It was pathetic, and in hindsight, it was a uh... It was clear to see that it was uh, that we were intentionally sandbagged. You have to be a special kind of despicable to do that and do what Precourt did those first few years in Columbus and misleading the the team and the community and the fans that badly, given what his true intent was all along. The research that Tim Myers and Keith Noss contributed changed the narrative and it fueled the Save the Crew movement, but there was still work to be done. They didn't know when this was going to end. You know, it could end tomorrow. Or it could end in two years. But at that point in time, I think that the initial few months, if you will, at least a few weeks, they thought they had to do everything they could every single day because they couldn't hold anything back. Now, over time, when they got maybe three months in after the season was over, they get into winter. Now they realize they're in for more of a long-term, you know, long-term game here. So they had to be more strategic. And what they did, when they did do something, it had to be big. One of the biggest initiatives came that December. They made a video called Dear Austin. Dear Austin, we are the fans. We are the fans. We are the fans of the Columbus Crew. We had a, a breadth of, uh, of talented people in many different arenas. One of our strengths was, you know, creative marketing. Uh, and that all goes to John Zadar, Mark Bucinich, Chris Blaine. And I think it was Mark that came up with the idea to do Dear Austin. And all it was was us saying, like, you know, Dear Austin, we want you to have a beautiful, thriving soccer community like we have. 
But you don't want to. You don't want to have that like this. You don't want to do it that way. Come on, Austin. Our family. Now our owner wants to move our team to your city and is pitting our community against yours, like the Hunger Games. We know how special it is to have a soccer team to call your own. We know. It was a plea to Austin saying, "You deserve a team. We want you to have a team. We're not your enemy. Just don't take our team." <laughs> and that was the tone all the way through. I mean, they they were really careful, even though inside they were seething. You know, they were seething against Precourt and Garber, and, and every once in a while a tweet might come out that, you know, had some anger to it. But for the most part, it was, if you're representing the Save the Crew movement, then you're representing this, this entire movement, and you're representing the community, and we have to go about this the right way. Take the high road, right? We're going to be positive. We're going to be optimistic. You know, we have nothing against Austin. Austin, you deserve a team. Just not our team. truly your own. Not our team. Not our crew. Not our crew. Not our crew. So we're asking that you stand with us. To keep the crew in Columbus. Tell your city representatives. Your business owners. Everyone you know. That you don't want the crew to be taken from Columbus. Tell them. Not this team. Not this team. Not this team. Not like this. Not like this. Not like this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was, the, that was on the front page of ESPN.com. You know, like, it was a big deal. At this time, the world was behind Saving the Crew, but it would take more than public support to stop the team from moving. Saving the Crew really was a, a three-legged stool. Save the Crew movement, one, one leg. The ownership group coming together was one leg, but the lawsuit was the third leg of the stool. Mike Duffy, and I'm a former state legislator that first called on the state of Ohio to sue the Major League Soccer to keep the crew in Ohio. Mike Duffy knew about the Modell law. People had kind of brought up that this law existed, the Modell law, Ohio Revised Code 9.67. But I kind of dismissed it in the past, and I think other people really didn't even give it much of a look. It was written um, into Ohio law when the Browns left, and it states that any professional sports team, if they are interested in leaving, they must give a certain period of time for a new owner to come to the table and express their interest. That has not happened yet. They've not started that clock yet, if you will, right? You know, this kind of thing never been challenged. Um, there had never been a suit filed, of course. And it was kind of, you know, one of these laws, it was, just, it was developed and most people didn't even know about it. It was enacted after the Browns move and then there was never a sports team challenge that rose to the level that it was ever triggered. So it just sat there dormant for 25 years. Other people really didn't even give it much of a look, partially because some publications like Columbus Business First and others had written that the crew was privately owned and had only received private money. And that actually turned out to be false. They had taken a lot of state money. We found out that there was a non-arm's length transaction for the parking proceeds. So all the parking proceeds, the ticket revenue, like when there were concerts there that had nothing to do with the crew. If somebody had rock on the range or whatever, most of that money was going back to the crew's ownership. The state had improved the parking lot for free, and then they had exempted the property from property taxes by an amendment that had been lobbied for by the crew a number of years ago as well. So we had them like three different ways, having accepted very substantial amounts of state money. I knew that the Columbus Partnership cared about this. So I called Bill Byers over the Columbus Partnership. And I said, I've got this legal theory. And he was like, wow, <laughs> I think he's a little skeptical. And I said, I'm going to call the attorney general's office and see what they think. And he called uh, uh, Mike DeWine, who was the attorney general at the time. And he said, hey, there's this Modell law 
they called me back and they said, our attorneys have looked at it and it is not frivolous, which was like less than a ringing endorsement. But basically they were saying, this could work. Mike DeWine called uh, Alex Fisher, who was president and CEO of the Columbus Partnership, and said, what do you think about this Model Law? Is this something you think we ought to pursue? And this was in December. And Alex said, yes, definitely. So they fired off a, a warning shot to pre-court a letter saying, on behalf of this law, we now challenge your intent to move to Austin. I was like, is this, is this real? Is it actually on the books? Like, if th this is past legislation. This is in the Ohio Revised Code. Like, this is how we win this fight. This is law. Like, you can't just ignore this. They're going to, you know, when the time is right, they're going to get, they're going to get sued. Mike DeWine wouldn't bring the suit for a minute. I think that he wisely was uh, allowing maybe conversations in the background between the league and, and whomever at the time to progress. And when he had the uh, impression that they weren't progressing enough, he, he dropped the hammer. Later in the spring, they actually filed lawsuits. The state filed a lawsuit and the city filed a lawsuit uh, with the Modell Law. And what that did, that bought time. The court has allowed the thing to progress or whatever. It's going to be like, they put a stay on it, I think, of like 90 days or 120 days. And I did the math in my head and I was like, well, that's into next season. So they can't leave. The legal stuff moved its way through the process. MLS hired the most expensive sports specialist law firm that you could out of New York. And I kind of felt like we were gonna win as soon as I saw who they hired, because I was like, they don't really understand Ohio. They didn't hire an Ohio firm. They just went with the big New York firm. And you had a young attorney at the attorney general's office who was arguing the case, but he was really good. And his oral argument was better. I sat through the oral argument for both sides and I felt good about it. We had a likelihood of winning. Even then, through all of that, all it gave us was the guarantee that the state would have the opportunity to try to find owners in Ohio who would buy it. I mean, obviously we didn't, we needed someone to buy the crew, so there was still a whole lot of work to be done. But I knew that like, if we could get there, this was the way that it would eventually, it would eventually end. The Save the Crew movement, the fans themselves created the energy to make the politicians care. It was just Ohio against the world. It wasn't even about Columbus. It was just like the fact that people in other states sometimes view Ohio as flyover territory, that they can just treat us as disposable. <laughs> and so it was just really nice to say, no, not, not this time. With the newly recognized Modell Law buying the crew some time, the Save the Crew movement tried to make the team as attractive as possible for new owners. People kept telling us that they wanted to, you know, they wanted to buy season tickets for the crew, but they didn't want to give money to Anthony Precourt. They wanted to buy merch, but they didn't want to give money to Anthony Precourt. So we identified this opportunity to start a, a ticket pledge, and that was the understanding that we would start collecting contact information for people that were going to buy partial or full season tickets uh, when the new ownership group came to be. Because they had to keep the crew in the news. They had to keep new things happening. They designed a stadium. You know, we were never going to buy the team. We were never going to build the stadium brick by brick ourselves. But what we could do is we could be an aspirational group who could show everyone what the future could be if MLS decided that we were worthwhile. And... The stadium design was was exactly that. It was us saying, 
imagine, if you will, this bright of a future? David Fast, one of the members of Save the Crew, is a city planner. And so he really led this charge. And he worked with architectural firms and designers. And uh, so here, here you go. you've got a city planner on the team, right? It wasn't like somebody just sketched this out. It wasn't just the design. It was an entire infrastructure and, and traffic flow and where the beer garden is going to be and where parking is going to be and the vicinity with other things. And then, you know, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was, it, was, it was the real deal. Everyone goes crazy over stadium porn. You know, it's, people are almost more excited about renderings than they are like when the stadium itself opens. All three local news channels came. I think uh, somebody from Austin came. I mean, so it got, it got coverage again. It was like, bam, back in the news. There were a couple murals that were put up, Respect Your Roots murals. And, and the message Respect Your Roots was so important because Respect Your Roots, going back to the crew being the first franchise named, so our roots go back to the formation of the MLS. You know, you don't just yank the oldest tree out of the ground like that. All of these things, again, save the crew, save the crew, save the crew. That was it, save the crew. So earlier you heard Pete referring to saving the crew as a three-legged stool. On one leg, you have the movement, the Save the Crew movement, the group of community advocates raising awareness. The second leg, you've got the Modell Law, which prevented Precor from abruptly moving the team without giving an opportunity for a new ownership group to come forth. And that was the third and final leg that Columbus was still waiting for. Well, in October of 2018, one year since this movement began, Columbus was about to receive the news they've been waiting for. Andrew King, who was the attorney and legal representation of the of the movement, got official word that there was going to be an announcement that buyers were going to come forth. They had an inkling something was going to happen at some point soon, but they didn't know this was coming on a nine o'clock on a Friday morning. But Andrew's first call or text was to Morgan. Andrew found out through his channels that the announcement was happening on Friday. So we had this uh, announcement planned to the Save the Crew team on Friday morning and I went to breakfast with my wife and now we just knew it was going to be a crazy day. And Andrew and I had decided that like I would tell the leadership team on Slack after breakfast. Morgan says, okay, give me, give me like 45 minutes. Give me like 30 minutes. I'm just going to have a sandwich, a delicious breakfast sandwich with my wife. Then we'll announce that the crew is saved. In Andrew's excitement, he couldn't do that. So he went ahead and set the post out to the save the crew team. Andrew tags me in the leadership group and he says, Morgan Hughes, go ahead and make the announcement. And I was like, you ass. All hell breaks loose. You know, the, the group went crazy, right? They'd already decided that if and when this ever happens, we're going to party at Endeavor, which is where they had all the Save the Crew leadership meetings every Monday evening. I had to call the owner of Endeavor, whose name is Scott, and tell him that the city was going to descend upon him. And I couldn't tell him why, because I was, you know, I was under instructions to not tell. He tweets out, opening early today, full staff, big news, hashtag save the crew. Okay. So that got picked up. And now everybody now is seeing this, that Endeavor's opening up at 11 o'clock and it has to do with save the crew. And it must be that the crew has been saved. Endeavor tweeted like, you know, yes, we're open early today. Hashtag save the crew or whatever. And you know, like People started talking on social media, but no one was saying what it was. Fever was just crazy, and Endeavor now is rocking with the anticipation that something's going to happen. Now, this hasn't been announced. The MLS was going to announce it at noon, but they started dragging their feet. Save the Crew folks decided that we're not going to wait for them. We're just going to announce it. And so they tweeted out, we saved the crew. We all did this together. 
and uh, it forced the MLS's hand. And sure enough, a, a deal was was in the works. Uh, everything wasn't signed and sealed yet, but it's looking positive. They released the statement that the Haslam's are going to buy the crew, and uh, I mean, just unregulated happiness. I went home and I turned the local news on and they were live at Endeavor. And I just remember (laughs) just thinking, holy cow, they did it. One of the best things that's ever happened to me was when sitting in that bar and watching people come in one by one with this look of confusion and hope and please tell me what I want to be told and being able to tell them, it's over, we saved the crew. It kicked off this, the happiest, longest, and most beer-filled day of my life. There are a lot, of, uh, a lot of stories about a lot of drinking that day and that night. I mean, how many teams won championships? Countless. There are a lot of people who celebrate championships. How many fan bases celebrate saving their team themselves? Just one. Just us. And everyone that was there that day, be it in spirit or physically, got to experience that thing that no one else in the world has ever experienced. It was the best day of our lives. There are 50 franchises had up and left their cities in the last 100 years in North America. The difference here was that this community of crew fans said, we're not going to let it happen. Never before has a fan base ever been able to influence that, to keep a team to stay. This is the only time. History was made and the crew was saved on October 12th of 2018. Two years later, they were about to move. Not 1,200 miles away, though, but five miles south to their new home. However, before they did, the black and gold gave these dedicated fans one more thing to celebrate before the big move. 2020. They were seemingly going in the right direction, winning. And you start wondering, like, can you imagine this year of all years, after the crew was saved, them going deep into the playoffs and maybe even challenging for the MLS Cup. Going through the season, they win the frickin' Cup. But it was the year of the pandemic, and no one was there. And you can just imagine what that stadium would have been like. We now welcome MLS Cup champion and Columbus Crew head coach Caleb Porter. Thanks, Caleb, for joining us, and congratulations. What a long journey to this point. My overwhelming feeling after the match was for the fans, what they've been through to save the team. I, I just felt so good for them. So good for them because they deserve that. We've been through a lot, and and uh, I was very motivated to bring a trophy back to them, and they'll remember this forever. All right, we welcome in MLS Cup champion, Columbus Crew captain, Jonathan Mensah. Congratulations, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much. It's it's been uh, an incredible journey for 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 the club, for the city, and and for the people of Columbus. You know, everyone behind the Save the Crew movement, you know, for, for this to be possible today, it is, it is you know, by their efforts and, and their fight of the field, their determination, their resiliency, uh, kind of like got us to where we are now, you know, for us to be able to accomplish this mission. So 
uh, we're so grateful for their sacrifices of the field and, and um, you know, what we could do to, to kind of like pay them back was to win this trophy for them. So uh, thankful that we have this amazing fan base behind us and, you know, we did this for them. Had it not been for the Save the Crew movement, that would not have happened. Now we have a new stadium, which is the state-of-the-art stadium, the best stadium in the country. I've traveled extensively in Major League Soccer. I've been to uh, well over half of the cities to watch the crew play road games. So I know what it's like to be in a nice arena. This blows all of them away. You know, every time I walk in that place, I just feel like, uh, I just, just think we did it. You know, sitting in that stadium and thinking about, had it not been for the Save the Crew movement, I'd be sitting on a piece of dirt right now if I were right here in the spot. There would not be a stadium here. There would not be the crew here. The contribution to the fabric of the community alone for decades to come now, when we may have lost this, potentially giving up and letting the team go to Austin like you know every other city has done to what this group did. I mean, they're forever going to be memorialized. You can't make a movie about it because no one would believe it. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, oh, they saved their team. Oh, and then they won the cup. Oh, pff, oh and then they opened a new stadium. Oh, okay, yeah, right. Like, you couldn't, you know, no, people would walk out in the middle of it. it was, it's too much of a fairy tale. As you can tell by now, saving the crew was not just the work of one person. You had the Save the Crew leadership team, supported by countless volunteers, raising awareness, showing that this team mattered to Columbus. You had the Ohio government providing the legal fight with the Modell Law. And then you have the new ownership group, which eventually bought the team from Precourt, preserving it in Columbus. It really took the entire community to come together to achieve something that's never been done before. And sure, you can credit the success of this movement to how passionate soccer fans are. Because like Pete said, soccer fandom is a level deeper than other sports. But I'd argue that the love we have for the city of Columbus runs a level deeper as well. Even Morgan Hughes, the spark that started this whole movement, said himself that supporting the crew comes more from his love of Columbus than his love of soccer. So who can say if the crew would have been saved if this happened in another city? But because it happened here in Columbus, the crew's not going anywhere. From the fans to the new owners to the business people to the politicians, you know, they did something that had never been done before. And people from all over the world knew about the Columbus crew and wanted the Columbus crew to stay in Columbus. You know, when you see the Columbus crew win MLS Cup in 2020 and you see the new stadium downtown, it's... I mean, these are just incredible monuments to what Columbus achieved. You know, to kind of follow the ideals of, of the club's founder, Lamar Hunt, and, and, and kind of get to where you need to be by, by just being undeterred and, and not giving up. I think it's about the power of a community coming together and the power of people working as one to accomplish great things. From an Ohio standpoint and a state standpoint, we're leading a charge. Look to Columbus, look to Ohio, see how they stood up, and look how they, they succeeded in the, in the face of overwhelming odds. That's, that's the legacy of, of us as Ohioans. That's the legacy of Save the Crew. This is a state and a city of first. The first automobile, the first streetlight, the first people to fly, the Wright brothers from Ohio. You've got John Glenn, first man to orbit the earth, and the list goes on. So you have all these firsts. And the same goes for the sports world. Cincinnati Reds, first professional baseball team. The NFL born in Ohio, in Canton. And now we have everything associated with the crew. You've got the first team in MLS, the first soccer-specific stadium, the first team to have 
a second soccer-specific stadium. And then you have the first fans to save their team. So I think that is the crew's legacy. We're just continuing on what we do in Ohio, and that's be the first and be the birthplace of so many things. From Westlore Media, this has been Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero, president and executive producer here at Westlore Media and host of this podcast. I first want to thank my producer, Kevin Skubek. Both he and I are the creators of this series. We also got to thank Morgan Hughes, Pete McGinty, Josh Poland, Steve Sirk, Tim Myers, and Mike Duffy for their interviews. Quick little aside here, we read Pete's book, Accidental Heroes. It chronicles the Save the Crew movement, and we highly recommend it. So check out the link in the show notes. Much of the additional audio you heard here came from two sources, the Save the Crew's pages online, Thanks for permission, David. And Eunice Kim. She's the Senior Manager of Communications for the crew, and we appreciate you both very much. Finally, to every single volunteer, staff member, or to anyone who did anything at all to help keep the crew in Columbus, thank you. You are a shining example of some of the best here in this state. And if you'd be so kind, share this episode. Leave us a five-star review. We would greatly appreciate it. For Westlord Media, I'm Vince Tornero. Thank you very much for listening to and experiencing Profiles. On the next episode of Profiles, why Athens is the Halloween capital of the nation. Athens definitely has a strong connection to Halloween. It's got a reputation for being haunted, for being spooky, for being paranormal. Somebody hung themselves and they did a demon ritual cursing the place. That stands out in my mind as one of the freakiest things. There was a spirit that would appear named King, and he was supposed to be 14,500 years old. It's the one thing people think is haunted the most. I mean, dead body stain on the attic of a state mental institution, hell yes. That combined with the block party makes it a real sort of Halloween town. Athens had that reputation of it's a wild town because we were really nationally known as a school that partied. That's one of the most enduring legends of that place. It's also completely true. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.